Lions, Bengals, and Bears, none of my guys scared. Chase rumbling, any one of them guys there. Wayne Young and he hungry, I pray we patient with him. I pray he leave with some money, I pray he leave with his health. Yeah. Uh, the physical and mental The thing I like about football is that stats kill opinions This rap shit I licked it I ain't about to knock it This whole summer I was buying oil and went to Prada And I tried being peaceful But my peace was getting bothered So no doubt we got them eagles We go Carson Wentz, Stefani Okay, okay, okay Welcome to episode 127 of Electrified I'm your host, Eric Lyons This episode is titled Sue Me. That is the title of Wale's song that goes Sue Me. I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Everybody, man. I'm rooting for everybody that's black. This episode is about black history, black stories. So we're celebrating Black History Month in the month of February. And what I did was I wanted to take some time and I compiled six stories, six segments over the past that I've done over the past couple of years um, you know, that, that shares, shed, shed light on black stories that I've told for like, these are very important. So if you haven't heard them or haven't heard them in a while, you know, newer listeners, these, these are stories that are very important to me. And I feel like I put a lot into each of them and they needed more, you know, appreciation and a little more credit. And I just wanted to put them all together and create this very special episode as we enter the first week of February. So this is, you know, this was my plan. I'm happy that I did this. Now, I think it's six stories. Uh, We got the Kylan Hill versus Mississippi Mississippi State segment when he took on his uh, his college over the Mississippi State flag. Uh, I talked about the media framing of the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. Then I talked about racism in soccer, the rise and fall of HBCU football, and how black coaches and black quarterbacks are treated in the NFL. All of these segments are great, powerful. You'll learn a few things. Uh, it's really good. It's really good. It's really good. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to share this with you once again. If you've heard these, just listen to them again. You know, maybe you forgot, or you know what I mean. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode, but I will be back on next week, next week, sometime next week, front half more than likely, more than likely it will be a Wednesday episode, you know, balancing between Wednesday and Thursday right now, but I'll be back on Wednesday, you know, for episode 128, but you can catch me Sunday, I'll be doing a little pregame Super Bowl coverage over at Sports Headline, so you can catch me there, uh, we got that going on. I got new merch dropping tomorrow on Bonfire. So I'll have that launching and then I'll be back on YouTube next week. Listen, man, I wasn't going back on the tube this week. I need to get a haircut. My guy Mork, he got to come. He got to come bless me this weekend, man. I'm not going back on there looking crazy. I'm sorry. So, you know, that's that's pretty much the rest of this upcoming week. So we got YouTube next week, uh, episode 128 next week and the new merch tomorrow. So, you know what I mean? You know, right now, just sit back, relax, enjoy this show. Enjoy it, man. I put, you know, I'm happy I was able to put this together. Um, happy Black History Month, ladies and gentlemen. And most importantly, more importantly, be electrified. I'm going to start off with media framing. And the kid, the, the murderer, uh, Cal Rittenhouse. 17 year old 
that launched uh, fire into a crowd of protesters, killed two people. That's where I want to start. Let's talk about media framing real quick. Well, not real quick. Nothing, nothing today will be quick. So be ready to be here for a while, period. Because we're going to talk about we're going. We're, I'm going to take my time so you can hear me and feel me. So bear with me. <sighs> the media drowns out the message. First of all, this is I'm this is a, I'm reading what I'm about to be uh, talking to, talking from referencing is a um, an essay. And a presentation I gave on media and race riots. This was a speech I gave. Uh, what year was that, bro? Twenty seventeen or eighteen? So, this is where my point of reference is from. The media drowns out the message and promotes the violence, chaos, and anger that comes out of race riots in order to push a negative agenda onto black people. Tensions are as high as today as they were during the 1960s. When these tensions boil over into the streets and turn into demonstrations, you can always count on the media being there. Mass media outlets do not care about protesters being agitated by police in order to intensify a fever-hot situation. They just want to display a negative look at the black community. If race riots are a fuel, then the media Excuse me, if race riots are a fire, then the media is the fuel. Let's start off 1917, the East St. Louis riots. The media is quite intelligent and knows how to manipulate the way that people think. When a situation is driven by high emotion, the media can use that to their advantage and write certain things to get a reaction out of people. I read an article. Uh, that Terry Ann Knopf wrote titled Race Riots and Reporting. It quotes, Even before the first outbreak, newspapers in the area seemed to play on the sensitivities of the people. In May, news stories told of an impeding residential quote-unquote invasion by blacks. So basically, not only did the papers help ignite the incidents, they chose sides during the riots, like they were rooting for their favorite sports team. In the boxing world, when there's a big fight coming up, the boxers do press tours in order to hype and sell the fight. The media during this time decided to set the stage for a black versus white showdown before anything even happened. The St. Louis Republic tried to make it seem like the black people had more firepower and still lost in the altercation. The text states, what the news accounts of the time failed to mention was that whites had also carried weapons. Instead, the emphasis was on the automatic pistols and loaded revolvers and the possession of blacks. Knopf said, on the rare occasion when a white man was arrested, the local newspaper did not usually take trouble to do a story. Tulsa riots, 1921. A white mob went into the black community of Greenwood and attacked the residents and their businesses. Clearly domestic violence, but some didn't see it that way. 
Chris and Messer and Patricia A. Bell wrote mass media and governmental framing riots of riots, the case of Tulsa 1921. Research on newspapers and government reports after the riots to see how the event was framed. The text states, although evidence from the Red Cross, victim residents, and a few National Guard reports suggest that black citizens were merely victims of mob action. Most local media outlets portrayed the riot as quote-unquote Negro uprising. The article says police practices and some actions contributed to the, ri- to the progression of the riot. Some of these actions included uh, deputizing white white civilians providing guns to white civilians and doing little to disperse the white mob in the first place this is 1921 not 2016 not 2020 this is 1921 but it sounds very familiar i could have told you this was ferguson i could have told you this was kenosha i could have told you this was atlanta i could have told you this was um minnesota could have changed this to Minnesota 2020, Atlanta 2020, and of all made sense. Please do not underestimate the power the police have. Don't, ast- don't underestimate that. So when you see these people, you know, when you see certain certain demonstrations and certain riots get get more fickle don't just think it's the people all right look look a little closer you'll you'll see some things the watts riots 1965 injustices against the black community are like thunder and the riots that follow are the lightning since 1965 there have been a lot of perfect storms the Watts riot in 1965 started with a very intense traffic stop between the family of Marquette Fry and police officers on the scene. The situation boiled over into eight days of unrest. Maria Koch uh, wrote, Would anybody listen? Media-biased imaging of the culture of fear of African Americans during the Watts riots in 1965. Cook analyzed the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post in order to see how the media presented the Watts riot. She wrote, every article examined from both papers makes a clear distinction between white slash Caucasian people and African-American people or Negroes, as they are called in these articles. And an analysis an analysis shows that the word Negro is used 68 times in the Washington Post and in the L.A. Times. 74 times she refers to the theory of dominant white attitude which was strong in both newspapers once again black people are the main attraction at the media circus this is similar to when they call black people thugs when when black people go out and and end up damaging some businesses in the name of justice in the name of unrest in the name of we tired of y'all killing us in the name of Black Lives Matter and the names of peaceful protests. Y'all don't want to hear that. And the names of it started off peaceful. Then y'all made it unpeaceful. So, you know, what I mean, you, you see what I'm saying. But when some white kids go out, flip some cars because their D3 school won a rival game or, or, or some white kids or some Canadian kids 
go out and terrorize the town because the Canucks won a game. Like, do you, it's okay. Nah. Nah. They're thugs, too. Detroit riots, 1967. Fast forward to 1967, and television has come to be a leading source of news. Now the cameras are capturing live footage and showing people all over the world all types of images. Benjamin D. Singer wrote, "Mass media and, com- and communication processes in the 19 and excuse me in the Detroit riot of 1967. 499 black men who were arrested during the riots were interviewed. According to Singer, the majority of the participants had college degrees and gave their views on how the media showed the riot on TV." The table was called Perceptions of What People Were Doing During the Television Riot Sequences. Violent Acts uh, Against Persons, 49.8%. Looting, 21%. Peaceful Demonstrations, 7.2%. This was before the pay-per-view era, but the mass media was showing the violence on primetime television like it was a Saturday night fight card. Instead of trying to show that there was a balance By showing the peaceful demonstrations, they highlighted the violence and negativity. This is 1967. Once again, I could put this on Baltimore, 2015. Ferguson, 2015, 2016. Minnesota, 2020. Kenosha, 2020. Portland, 2020. D.C., 2020. New York, 2020. Nine times out of ten, these peaceful protests start off peaceful. These police officers, they come in with their riot gear. They're already amped up. They want to do something. I've seen the, I've seen video of an officer amped up, ready to do something crazy, waiting for somebody to try him. And his own man had to tell him to calm his ass down. They want that. They come out looking for the smoke. Because they know they, they got the tear gas. They got the rubber bullets. They get, they got the riot gear on. They want that. So they go out. They agitate the situation. And it boils over. And now all of a sudden. Oh. They're rioting. Oh look at the looting. But it always starts off. The, the one thing that's always. The constant in this. People always tell. That we're there. We we'll always say. Started off peaceful. Started off peaceful, but the media they don't they don't, they don't show this. Uh, they don't. They don't. Nineteen ninety two, L A riots. There's a documentary on everything I'm about to talk about right here on Netflix. Very hard to watch, but I, I would I definitely now would be the time to watch it. Whew. Su Kwong Oh and Justin Hudson wrote Framing and Reframing the 1992 L.A. Riots, a study of minority issues framing by the L.A. Times and its readers. Text stated, How did the mainstream newspaper and its readers discuss minority-related issues differently before and during the 1992 riots? It's quite interesting to see how much mainstream media and society as a whole care about issues before the outrage starts the phrase numbers don't lie heavily applies to the study 
By searching the names of Rodney King and Latasha Harlins, the number of stories related to them were uh, found in specific time frames. According to the study, from March 17, 1991 to December 14, 1991, there were a total of 96 stories written about King and Harlins, in comparison to 133 stories written about the riots from April 30, 1992 to May 29, 1992. So the final score of Rodney and Harlan's versus the riots was 133 to 96 in favor of the riots in a much shorter time span. And of course, the officers involved in the Rodney King beating were acquitted and the woman who killed Latasha Harlan's murdered her was convicted on voluntary manslaughter, not first degree murder. In conclusion, the main concept that I was able to pull from all of this research was framing. I think about an actual picture frame when framing is discussed because that is what it reminds me of. Putting one thing into focus while ignoring or not showing everything around it. That is what the media has been doing to race relations over the past 100 years. And clearly it continues to do so let's go to the fast forward to today august 2020 jacob blake was shot seven times seven times in his back we're gonna get to that but let's start skip on the media and it's kyle right uh kyle what's his kid's name kyle rittenhouse in the media so let's start off with this right here Fox News, Tucker Carlson said, are we, are, are we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? This is the, I mean, I'm not surprised by this. This is Fox News. But this is someone with a bigger, a way bigger platform than me. Is condemning murder. He's condemning murder. It's okay. It's okay if a white kid does it. That's that's he justified murder. I want to say did their police chief say something like this wouldn't happen if if people were in during uh, curfew? He said something like that, bro. Something of that nature. So here's what um here's what we know about this this guy. So he supported Blue Lives Matter, which which isn't real. Blue Lives Matter is not a real thing. Uh it, it makes me laugh when especially, you know, in this area when I see people with the uh the Blue Lives Matter flags, I guess. It's hilarious because blue lives don't exist. There are no blue people. Um, the only blue people that I know personally are the Smurfs. Um, good people. Great people love the Smurfs. Shout out to Papa Smurf. Um, but police officers, they're not blue. They don't bleed blue. Blue Bloods, that's the cool show, but they're not. They don't bleed blue. Um, they're they're on um, black, white, 
Latino, all types of colors. They're not blue, though. They're not blue. And to be that delusional, to put more value, more value into blue lives matter that don't exist, while at the same time devaluing black lives matter, which actually, which black lives do actually exist. There are black people who actually are alive and living and are dying in this country. I think that's pretty laughable. You can put so much energy into hating a group of people while supporting <laughs> people of a figment of, like it's it's basically like you're fans of the Avengers. They're not real. They're not a real thing. That's like saying um all elves matter or elves lives matter. They're not real. Santa Claus isn't real. Blue lives matter doesn't exist. Please get that through your thick skulls. Once again, I'm not talking to you people. I'm not talking to my guys, my people. Because we know that already. I'm sure we know that already. So he murdered innocent people. Not only did he kill two innocent people. He did it in the presence of police. Police were there. They were there. He walked right past them. Like he had the Harry Potter cloak of invisibility on. With an AR-15. Not a pistol. Not nothing that was in his dip. It was on his shoulder like he was in Iraq. He didn't have to reach for it. It was out. Also, I've read something that said, and I believe in Wisconsin. But I think he's from Illinois. I'm not sure. But you're not even supposed to have. You, you, you can't be licensed to carry under 18. Just something to think about. So, <sighs> this is crazy, man. So, he murdered two innocent people on camera in the presence of police and was able to be lawfully arrested, survived this arrest with no injuries. So, he was arrested, lawfully arrested, while Sandra Bland died after a traffic stop. Mike Brown died with his hands up. <laughs> Whew. Oh, man. So, when we talk about the media and the framing of certain events, or certain people. It's clear as day. And as many times as we see it. You think they would stop. But now it's just redundant. And they're doing it on purpose. Because we're not dumb. We see it. We see you. We know the vibes already. We know what type of time y'all on. It's nothing new. It's 2020. We've all seen these movies before. So the New York Post. Two different headlines. Jacob Blake. Had a knife in his car when he was shot by police, says DOJ. There's a headline. Here's another one. Suspect, suspected teen, excuse me, suspected teen gunman Kyle Rittenhouse spotted cleaning Kenosha graffiti 
uh, um, yeah, before shooting. Come on, dog. Somebody, and then I read another article, I read another headline that called him a vigilante. The hell, dude, not no damn. He's not. He's not no damn anti-hero. He's not racist bat. Like they trying to make dude seem like racist Batman. Like he's not Sting coming to save us from the NWO, bro. He's a murderer. He's a coward. Of of of, of uh, before anything, he's a coward. Shooting into a crowd of innocent people was cowardly. Cowardly. And you know what the police did for him? Oh, here's a bottle of water. Like what? Oh yeah, he was he was scraping off graffiti before he did this. So, oh man, it's all right. Dylan Roof went to a church, had Bible study, then killed everybody there. What do you say? Oh, oh yeah, he was also lawfully arrested. Survived his arrest. They even took him to Burger King. So they probably took old cow to Red Lobster. You want to take some Cheddar Bay biscuits with you before we take you to booking? Tuh. Remember when Trayvon Martin left this earth? Remember that? Feel like a long, feel like fifteen years ago, don't it? I remember how young I was under trying to understand that situation. But remember that? And they kept calling him a thug. I mean, they kept calling him a thug. He was a thug. Kept kept showing us a picture of him when he was with the hoodie on. Oh, this thug, that, this thug, that. Look at his Instagram. He putting his middle fingers up. Look, he had fronts. Look at the type of stuff he posted. Remember when Mike Brown left this earth? Also, speaking of Mike Brown, if you there's a documentary it was on Stars. I don't know if it's on there anymore. You can probably find it. I believe it's called. Oh man, hold on, hold on. This documentary I watched this I think two years ago, last year, moved me to tears. Um, Stranger Fruit. Yeah, watched this couple like three years ago. Stranger Fruit, Mike Brown documentary. Read, watch that, please. Um, but remember when he left this earth, and they kept calling him a like a man, like this man died, this man, right? Mike Brown was eighteen, just graduated. Eighteen. Mike Brown was a teenager. When you turn eighteen, when I turned eighteen, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself to be a man. I was, I was still a teenager. Mike Brown was eighteen. The media wanted us to believe that he was such a a grown up. He was so big. He was so grown. As if he was in his 30s. Bro, he was 18. A kid. A baby. Ain't know nothing yet. But the media kept pushing. Oh, he was a man. He was a man. This 18-year-old man. This 18-year-old man. This 18-year-old man. But they want Ridden House. To remember this being racist Batman Instead of the killer And coward That he is
That's what the media does. All right, so I believe it was a couple days ago that the rule for the new uh, NFL the NFL minority rule was passed. This was um, something that was talked about a couple of a couple of months ago, and I didn't like it when I first heard about it. I didn't like it, and I, and they tabled it. They put it away. They said they weren't going to do it. I'm like, All right, cool. They weren't going to do it, and then now they're doing it. So it, it, it really did bother me. It bothered me. It still bothers me that they're doing this. So let's get into this. All right. Affirmative action. Affirmative action is a policy in which an individual's color, race, sex, religion, or national origin are taken into account to increase opportunities provided to an uh okay i'm sorry my handwriting uh, an underrepresented part of society once again affirmative action a policy in which an individual's color race sex religion or national origin are taken into account to increase opportunities provided to underrepresented parts of society the rooney rule NFL policy that requires league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coach and senior football operation jobs. Once again, the Rooney Rule. Uh, NFL policy that requires league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching and senior fo- uh, football operation jobs. The NFL has three black head coaches Mike Tomlin. Anthony Lynn and Brian Flores. Two black offensive coordinators, Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich. Ten black defensive coordinators. Two black GMs, Cleveland's Andrew Berry and Miami's Chris Greer. The league is virtually 70% black. You have a football league. You have a league of players. Built up of black athletes, black talents. Some of the best players on the planet are black in the NFL. But the masterminds. The people in charge are not, they're not black. Three black head coaches in the year 2020. Once again, there are three black head coaches in the NFL in the year 2020. The first black head coach in the modern era. In the modern era Was 1989 Excuse me 1986 1986 That's when we got the first black coach in the NFL In the modern era 1986 Art Shell The first black head coach In the modern era Now Fritz Pollard that's back in the 20s. Now, I I wasn't around yet. 
I don't think any of you guys were around yet, but not back in the 1920s, there was a man named Fritz Pollard. He was black. Not only did he assist, he was basically a co-coach, right? A co-coach, and he played. And then after his playing career, he would end up going to make a team full of just black players. He coached a team full of black players and played and coached uh, against other teams. But Fritz Pollard, back in the 1920s, before the NFL, before the NFL became the NFL, and then 1989, Art Shell became the first black head coach. So in 1989, there was one black head coach. Here we are in 2020, there are three black head coaches. Does that sound like progress to you? Changing a team's name. Putting some low, putting some decals on a helmet. That's that's not progressive. Yeah, sure, we're ch- we're making changes. Like I said, I don't I don't like to do that. I've said this in the past. I don't ask why now. I try not to do that. But you changed, you know, you changed a football team's name. Good. You you know, years later, you just realized that the Washington football's team name was racist. Cool. You you fixed that. Cool. 2020 made a lot of people realize that that police brutality and and racism actually still very much exists in 2020. Cool, the NFL finally got that. Cool, put in racism on the field. What what did they say? Oh, it takes all of us. Put that. Put in racism on the helmet. Put the names of black people who were slain by the police on the back of the helmets. Cool, cool. But that doesn't change the fact that there are three black head coaches in the league. Thirty-two teams. Three black head coaches. The league is 70% black, though. I'm not blaming this directly on the NFL, the entire NFL. I'm not going to blame that on, you know, on the league. I'm talking to the 32 owners, the, the GMs, you know what I mean? The people in power. They make the calls. They make the decisions. They're the reasons why we have the Rooney Rule right now. You have to interview a person of color when you're trying to find a new head coach, new GM, or you know any senior ops position. You have to do that because of the Rooney Rule. Does that mean you have to hire them? No. But you have to give them a chance. So, the new rule, teams will now be compensated draft picks for losing minority staff members to head coaching jobs elsewhere and premium jobs. So now, when... When a black staff member goes off and becomes a head coach or, you know... Gets promoted from uh, a, a position coach to an OC somewhere else, or they go and, and become a, a GM or something like that. The team gets draft picks when they go. Now, it may not saying it, and some of you hearing it, it might not sound crazy to you. But let me let me let me break it down for you. Let me break it down for you, so you can fully understand. 
you're rewarding teams for basically being diverse in 2020. It's like, thank you. Thank you for uh, having somebody black and your coaching staff in the year 2020. So here, since you did that, since since you did that, here's some draft picks for you. Somebody help me understand that. You're giving a team, you're giving teams a bonus instead of the minority coach who was being promoted. I mean, think about it this way. I don't even think I would be mad if like if a coach go to a new team and they get the draft picks. But then again, that's that's hiring them. I mean, that's that's rewarding them for hiring a black coach. So either way, it's nasty. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. It's, it's not a good look. Please tell me why the Chiefs need to be compensated if and when Eric Bieniemy goes out and gets a head coaching job. Think about it this way, people. Think about it this way. If you're not if you're not understanding the problem, that's like a university, a PWI, predominantly white institution. That's like if they get $100,000 after a black student graduates. Once again, this is like <laughs> a PWI getting $100,000 every time a black student graduates from their school. Doesn't that sound a little a little bit racist right there? Oh yeah, we're going to we're going to enroll more black students so that way when they graduate, we get $100,000. Think about it this way. The white-run organization gets a pat on the back for their black student or employee finding outside success. It's like they're trying to credit teams for their success. It's like they're saying the Chiefs by 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 Eric Bieniemy working with the Chiefs and and under Air, Andy Reid, we've we've built him up to be the man that he is today. So he, he so he can go out and get a head coaching job. That's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like. It looks like they're giving the organizations the credit and not the coach. Not the coach. That's what it looks like to me. Another minor, another minority coach who should be up for a head coaching job after this season. Should have been after this past season. Robert Sa- Robert Sala. I might be pronouncing his name wrong. Sala Sala. You guys know the the uh the 49ers defensive coordinator. Bald head hype dude. He's not black, but he's in the minority. He's not white. In this case, we have to lump everybody together because it's so small. There are my the, the minority representation in the NFL when it comes to coaching is minuscule. It's minuscule. 
So let's say Robert Saylor go, go go gets a job. Say he goes this offseason, he ends up coaching um, the Falcons maybe because that, that job will be open after this season. The 49ers are compensatory picks for that? Really? Imagine giving a team compensatory picks for Robert Saylor's work last season, the 49ers last season. That that defense that defense took them to the Super Bowl. Credit Kyle Shanahan, you know, for the run game. But ultimately that 49ers defense big part of their success, correct? Now imagine the 49ers without Robert Saylor last year. Imagine the Chiefs with no Eric Bieniemy. Would those teams look a little different? I think so. So how can you congratulate organizations for the work that one man or one or two men have accomplished? Tell me that. Tell me that. Tell me why the Chiefs deserve compensatory picks when Eric Bieniemy, with with the help of Andy Reid, but Eric Bieniemy is the offensive coordinator, had the 2018 Chiefs looking like the greatest show on turf. How do they get that? It looks crazy to me. It looks crazy. Like I said, it's like they're rewarding them for for growing them and their success. No way. No way. No way. No way. That that's not right. They didn't teach how Eric Benemy how to run the offense. They didn't teach him how to how to draw up a play. They didn't teach him that. He knew that coming in. That's why he got the job. So help me understand how that how this is this rule makes any sense or it's not offensive. Because it's offensive as hell to me. It don't make no sense to me. And I can't be the only one who feels this way. I can't. Imagine if Bill Belichick got draft picks for all the coordinators and assistants who went on to become head coaches. That'd be kind of crazy, right? Because he only had one black one go out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brian Flores, he goes out. He's the head coach of the Dolphins. What if he got picks for that? That would be kind of crazy, I think. It don't make no sense to me. It's just some some things just don't need to be done. Doesn't. And you talk about progression and 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 changing and making change and oh this is gonna make change and well, how? How so? How so? Like I said, nineteen eighty nine there was one black head coach. The first one at that. It's 2020. There are three black head coaches. What progress have we made? What progress have we made? The league is 70% black. There are three black head coaches. What progress have we made? And you're talking about progressive. You know, this new rule, this 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 new minority rule with these, you know, these picks. This is as progressive as states and city. You know, stopping police officers from choking people to death. It's like, hey, you know what I mean? You're not supposed to do that, but hey, we're going to tell you not to. 
That's not prog- that's not progress. That's just something that should already that's something that already that should that shouldn't be done. What I'm saying is, you shouldn't get a pat on the ass for doing the right thing. It it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. This rule makes me mad, and it makes me look at the NFL very funny. But I mean, we all have had something to look at the NFL funny about over these last four years, though. So this is just piling it on. Just piling it on. You want to be mad about something when you talk about the NFL? This is something that you should be mad about. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than this. It's it's, it's way deeper than this. Talk about the overall perception of black coaches in the National Football League. Less room for error. Like I said, when we talked about the black quarterback a couple of weeks ago with the Dwayne Haskins situation, I touched on this briefly, and I told you guys that I would come back to this another time. Did I know it was going to be this fast? No, I did not. But another time has arrived, so it's time to talk about it. Black coaches. Less room for error. You don't have you don't have a chance to be bad as a black coach. You don't have the opportunity to grow. You can't be average. You got to be Tony Dungy, Mike Tomlin. You got to play. You got to be up there. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground for black head coaches in the NFL. Their lifespan is much shorter than and than white head coaches, and you can't tell me otherwise. All you got to do is your Googles, and you can see that. Or be an adamant fan of the game, or have a working brain, and you can see that. Black coaches and black quarterbacks, they're virtually the same. Their, their white counterparts can be average for years and remain in their position. But black black quarterbacks, black coaches, they don't get that luxury to be average. Let's look at Mike Tomlin. Tuesday I talked about Mike Tomlin and how he's the most winning black coach in football history. And I mean, you know, 14 seasons, no losing seasons. I talked about that. Let's talk about that. No losing seasons. Only win 8 and 8 three times. 1 and 1 in the Super Bowl. Missed the playoffs only five times in 14 seasons. Only five times in 14 seasons that he missed the playoffs. You talk about that, right? You hear his track record. Good track record, right? Don't sound don't sound too crazy. Now you look at let's look at another black head coach. Todd Bowles. Ty Bowles coached for the Jets for a couple of years, right? He's now the uh, defensive coordinator down in Tampa. Down in Tampa. So Ty Bowles in four seasons, first season with the Jets, started 10 and he went 10 and 6. They almost went to the playoffs that year. I remember that season. Five and, he went 5 and 11 twice, 4 and 12. That's four seasons. Four seasons. He was fired after three seasons of losing. That's only four seasons. 
You go 10 and 6 your first year, three straight losing seasons, then he was gone. Now, I talked about this on Twitter, and I asked somebody to say, you know, it's not a not a truly fair comparison when I talk about Jason Garrett's tenure in Dallas. Now, I get that. Jared Jones is an anomaly. He's an odd man. I don't know why he kept Jason Garrett around for so long. But it still it still works. Everything is circumstantial, absolutely. The Jets and the Dallas organization, they're both, eh, you know, they're not that great. So I can make this comparison. And I will make this comparison. Let's look at Jason Garrett. His first three seasons as a head coach for the Dallas Cowboys, they went 8-8 eight and eight, three times. Three times. Three straight times they went 8-8. Eight and eight. That's not a playoff record. Even in the NFC East, that's not a playoff record. Only made the playoffs three times in nine seasons. Three times. Jason Garrett started his career off with three straight losing seasons. Not losing seasons, but eight and eight. That's a losing season to me. Three straight. He didn't get fired. He got six more years. Started off average. Finished average. Three seasons of average got him six more. But Todd Bowles, three seasons of average below par. And he was gone. Do you see what I'm on? Do you, do you see the problem there? Everybody should be held accountable the same way. If you're not good at what you do, if the team you have is not good, you're, you, 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 you're average, you're gone. But somehow Jason Garrett managed to stick around. And now he's an, now he's an offensive coordinator for the Giants. Somebody tell me how the Giants are doing this season. Not very well. Is that right? Oh, I, I just thought I was... I mean, the, the, the Buccaneers defense looking kind of good down there. Shout out to Todd Bowles. But I... I'm just making an observation. I'm just making an observation. That's all. That's all I'm doing. Now back to Mike Tomlin. Let's talk about the media. I want to talk about the media. And their, and their I wouldn't say, scrutiny is a tough word. But the media always tries to paint certain narratives. Whether it's about a player a coach, organization, and this was this was that's not a black or white thing. That's with anybody. We all know how the media is. The media, they take a narrative, they run with it. They paint a narrative, they run with it. I get that. That's the media. But let's let's like let's take a look at something. I'm gonna go back to Mike Tomlin, right? 2013. Still started 0 and 3 in 2013. They was already asking. They was asking if he was on the hot seat. After three games, they were asking if Mike Tomlin was on the hot seat. These are real articles I was reading. Three games. Not 0-8. 0-6. 0-3. It was still September. This is 2013. Couple years removed from Super Bowl appearance. And they talking about was Mike Tomlin on the hot seat. You look fast forward this past offseason. 
multiple articles over this last offseason. Analyst. Is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat? Could Mike Tomlin be fired after the season if the Steelers don't have success? Two, two, two straight years without the playoffs, it might be time for Mike Tomlin. His stay in Pittsburgh might be done. Like I said, everything is circumstantial. You talk about these past two seasons. He lost Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. Two of the biggest pieces to that offense at that, at that time. Not only did he lose that. But we need to give Mike, uh, Mike Tomlin credit for keeping that locker room. Not only did he keep it together. But all that stuff in house. We didn't know about AB having problems with Ben. We didn't know about the Le'Veon Bell situation until they came out. Until they got out of Pittsburgh. And then all the can you know, until he wanted out of Pittsburgh, all the can of worms opened up. Mike Tomlin kept that in house. It takes a hell of a head coach to do that, by the way. But he loses two star players, right? Last season, Ben gets season-ending surgery. So, Mike Tomlin, three of the stars that made the Steelers so good these last five to ten years are gone. Who was the Steelers quarterback last season? Mason Rudolph. What is Mason Rudolph known for? Getting smacked with his own helmet by Miles Garrett. That was the highlight of Mason Rudolph's uh, season last year. Another highlight is when he got knocked silly against the Ravens and he had to uh, unscrew with a screwdriver, this face mask off, and he walked out of the stadium looking nuts. But that's what Mike Tomlin was dealing with. And they still had a chance to go to the playoffs at the end of the season. 8-8. Eight and eight. Still, that Steelers team was playing, and they were in games. They were not losing by much last season. Go look at it. That, that Steelers team still had a shot. That's coaching. And now, not only did he write the ship after two years of a, of a, of a mess in Pittsburgh, the Steelers are 8-0, number one in the AFC. Not the Chiefs, not the Ravens, not the Titans. Not the Texans, not the Bills, nobody that was in in the playoffs last year. The Steelers, who missed the playoffs last year, are 8-0 and number one in the AFC. I don't hear none of that hot seat BS right now. I don't hear nobody calling for Mike Tomlin's head right now. I don't hear none of that. It's quiet for y'all. The apology should be as loud as the disrespect was. Everybody owes Mike Tomlin an apology. Is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat? Is it is his stay in Pittsburgh almost up? Have y'all lost your damn minds? That's what I'll be talking about. We don't get the same luxury. There's no time to be average as a blackhead coach. You either you have to win, but if you lose, you're gone. You can't be in the middle. 
You can't have ups and downs. Only ups. Only ups. You can only win. They only like you when you're up. They only like you when you're up. And that's a fact. That's a fact. Now let's go look at Anthony Lynn. I was talking about the Chargers on Tuesday. The best two and six team in football. Easily could be 8-0. Now I look on Twitter. You know, fans are frustrated. Rightfully so. You got a good team. You got a good rookie quarterback. You guys feel like you should be better than you are. And I, I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Now, the media, they, they a lot of media heads, they're not watching a bunch of football. They're not watching every game. They're not watching every single detail. Now, fans of these teams, they see these teams week in, week out. They know the ins and outs of their team. They're super fan. They know what the problem is. A lot of Chargers fans feel like it's the offensive coordinator's problem. He's the problem. Shane, I don't know what this guy's last name. Shane something, the offensive coordinator of the of the LA Chargers. Calls the plays. Calls the plays. One more time. He is the play caller for the offense. So when you talk about the Chargers offense blowing, you know, you talk about the Chargers blowing double digit leads. Five double digits lead leads they blew. That comes out of conservative play calling and bad clock management. You know who that falls on? Your offensive coordinator. And this Chargers team has just had a lot of misfortune. Missed field goals. Bad calls from the refs. And just all in all, it's just been a lot of bad luck. How can we blame that on Anthony Lynn? How can we blame that on Anthony Lynn? I just want to know why the media is so focused on him. Getting his head chopped off and him, you know, getting him out of LA. I don't get it. This is only his third, what's this, what, third or fourth season with LA? They went 12 and 4 his first season. And it's just been two down years. But like I said, this Chargers team isn't getting blown out every week. They've lost by eight points or less every week. So that's, 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 that's the little things. It's the little things. That's not all on him. It's not. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. They, 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 they've created this narrative that is all on him. Now, I want to talk about a specific article. A very specific. This is. Who is this? The, um, the Yardbreaker. This is a Yardbreaker article. Look it up. You can Google. Google. You don't even have to type the word fired in. Google Anthony Lynn, and it'll be about eight to ten articles about why he should be fired right now. That's all you got to do. And this, this, this is what the article wrote. If you look back at Anthony Lynn's coaching career, it's important to note one thing. He was only an offensive coordinator for one year before the Chargers had him. That season saw the Bills ranked 30th in passing offense. Now, now, now we're going to break this one down. This, this is all, all I needed was one quote. And I could tell y'all why this is a problem. Let's look at the first part of that. He was only an offensive coordinator for one year. So that statement right there implies that you're trying to say he's inexperienced. And by that, 
you know, he it disqualifies him to be a head coach. Okay, so you're saying that's that that part right there plays a part in why the Chargers are having success because he was only an offensive coordinator for one season. So that means that's why the Chargers are so bad. Okay, cool. Let's 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 stay with that right there, right? Let's stay with the the inexperienced one right there, right? Let's stay with that. Who was I talking about before the season started? Joe Judge. What did I say before the season started? Who the hell is Joe Judge? I I, I could I thought I said that about fifteen times. I thought I said that. The same Joe Judge, who got this head call head coaching job, because he had a cup of coffee with Bill Belichick. And by that I mean he was never an offensive coordinator. He was never a defensive coordinator. What experience does he have? No, no, he's never ran an offense. But somehow he's fit to run a football team. And that football team is ass out right now. They're not good. They're not good. They're not good. A lot of these white coaches, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this, but it has to be said. They don't have that much experience running anything but teams into the ground. Directly into the ground So don't Try to make Anthony Lynn's uh, One season Offensive coordinator Minute school Don't try to look down on that And then And then what was real cute You know what I mean Because they kept it real cute I thought it was cute That they said that the Bills You know Because he was He was the OC For the Bills that season I thought it was cute That they said The Bills ranked 30th In passing offense But they failed to mention How the damn Bills Were had a franchise setting, a franchise record setting season running the football. Third all time. Rushing yards and touchdowns that season. You know why? People, all you got to do is your Googles. It's not that hard to know why the Bills were having so much success running the ball that season. Do you know who Anthony Lynn was before he got into coaching? He's a two-time Super Bowl winning, winning running back. You know what he did after that? He was a running backs coach. Assistant running backs coach. Run first. That's why the hell the Bills weren't passing the ball that much. Don't make it seem like the Bills were trying to be a passing team and they just didn't have success. No, they were running the football down people's throats. Therefore, I'm pretty sure their running offense ranked much higher than their passing defense. So stop telling half-assed stories to paint your weak-ass narratives when you talk about black head coaches. Because it's not right. It's not right. At all. You look at Joe Judge. Matt Rule. Zach Taylor. None of them are having winning seasons right now. None of them. Nobody. I don't hear nobody calling for their heads. Adam Gase is awful. The Jets haven't won a game. They're 0-9. And he still has support from his GM. Imagine if Anthony Lynn was up there 0-9. Imagine if Eric Bieniemy, if he had, if he was a damn head coach, was up there 0-9. They wouldn't have a job right now. But somehow Adam Gates still was employed at 0-9 and has the GM's full support at 
But Anthony Lynn at two and six, oh, he gotta go. He gotta go. The Jets been getting smoked like swishes all all season. Had Le'Veon Bell fumbled him. It's a mess in New Jersey, not New York. New Jersey, them niggas, they don't play in New York. They play in Jersey. The Jets, 0-9. Just lost a game on national TV on Monday night. And y'all talking about Anthony Lynn. No. No. No way. No way. No way. No way. No way. I don't get it. I mean, I get it. I do get it. I do get it. And I feel like a lot of people don't. And it's a problem. It's a problem. 1986, ladies and gentlemen. That's when we got our first black head coach. The black head coach is an endangered species. That's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't want us here. They didn't even want to. They didn't even want us playing. Didn't want us coaching. Sure as hell don't want us to run a team. And I'm pretty sure all hell will break loose if we get the own one. It's 2020, and we still got to talk about stuff like this. If you don't see the problem, you blind, or you're just naive. If you don't know what's going on with the Washington football team, it's it's a it's a nasty situation. What do you think about it? It's a nasty situation. Let's just talk about three quarterbacks. It's about three quarterbacks. I want to start off with Daniel Jones, who is also in the NFC East. He plays for the New York Giants. This is his second year in New York. Let's talk about him. Daniel Jones this year, 0-4. He's throwing a pick every game. Hasn't thrown a touchdown since week one. His numbers on the year are 889 yards, two touchdowns, five interceptions, 68.3 QBR. This season, he's dealing with his second head coach. Same city, same stadium, different team, different division. Sam Darnold, 0-4. 700 yards, three touchdowns, four interceptions, 70.7 QBR. Second coach. Hasn't thrown over 20 touchdowns in a season. Dwayne Haskins, 2020. 1-3. 939 yards. Four touchdowns, three interceptions, 80.3 QBR. 300 yards last week against Baltimore. Second place in the NFC East. Second coach. Would have been his first full season. So, just looking at the numbers. Dwayne has thrown more touchdowns than interceptions. These other two quarterbacks have not. Dwayne's QBR is better than both of these quarterbacks. He's thrown more yards. 
He's not in last place in his division. Oh, and he has a win, by the way. All three of these quarterbacks are not in the best situations. Daniel Jones, he loses his running back to a torn ACL. Sam Donald's running back is dealing with injury. Both of them dealing with their second coaches. Not too many offensive weapons for them. Defenses, huh? Dwayne Haskins, he lost his running back to domestic violence. Only only receiver on the uh, Washington football team that I know off the top of my head is Terry McLaurin. Other than that, don't know anybody on the rest. Oh, excuse me, on the Washington football team. The difference between the three. Well, Dwayne has only started eleven games. These other guys have had full seasons. So Dwayne Haskins isn't even really out of a rookie season yet. Yet. I don't hear anybody calling for Daniel Jones' job. I don't hear any, uh, anybody calling for Sam Darnold's job. The energy is sent towards Adam Gase and Joe Judge in New York. But the Washington football team, their fans and management seem to be putting, and coaches seem to be putting all the weight of the world on Dwayne Haskins. Why? I mean, do I have to do I have to spell it out for you? Do I have to say it? Black quarterbacks, they don't get a chance to grow. Black quarterbacks don't get the opportunities that white quarterbacks who struggle or or start off slow or just become average quarterbacks, they don't get that luxury to be average. As a black quarterback, you can't be average. There is no average. It's either you're going to be Lamar, Russell, Deshaun, Pat, or th- there's no in-between. There's no going 7-9 seven and, seven and nine every year as a black quarterback. I can't go 6-10 and ten as a black quarterback and not worry about my job. I can't even get a full season as a black quarterback. Ask Jacoby Brissett. How the Colts doing this season? Hmm. Jacoby Brissett, who wasn't even supposed to be the starter last year, was supposed to come in this season, get a full camp, knowing he's going to be a starter. All right, let me let me try this again. Let me run this back. But no, who they bring in? Phillip Rivers, who can barely throw the ball 25 yards. The same Phillip Rivers that I watched last season in Mexico against the Chiefs throw a 50-50 ball to Austin Eckler, who's barely 5'9", 5'11". Bro, I don't, me and Austin Eckler, if we stand next to each other from a distance, y'all probably think we're the same height. Phillip Rivers threw a 50-50 ball to him. But that's the guy that's starting for the Indianapolis Colts right now. Black quarterbacks don't have a chance to, to, the, to develop. They don't get that they don't get that luxury. And why is the blame all on Haskins? That's what's really bothering me here. Why is the blame all of it on him? Why? Why is that? Why not the the offensive line who can't protect anybody? 
why not the receiving core, which is already said is dismal? Why not bring the, the, the dumbass running back for for getting involved in a domestic dispute? You know, don't don't make excuses for the other quarterbacks. Oh it's this, it's that. Give him a chance. Oh, he he's not in the right system. He he just needs more. Blah blah blah. But when it comes to Dwayne Haskins, oh, it's on him. He's gotta be better. He has to step his game up. It's interesting though Because you look at the history of the game And you look at things Said about certain You know black quarterbacks They like to call them athletic Or talented Gifted They never want to give them credit For having skill Um, They don't want to give them credit For their football IQ They don't want to give them credit For their passing It's just all talent And when you use the word talent And the word athletic That just turns into Oh they're uncoachable You can't really coach that They like to say that Oh you can't coach that They're uncoachable Hmm. Okay Okay All that is is a cop out To say Eh Eh We don't really We don't really believe In the black quarterback Here in Washington Staying on Washington, let's just just Washington, the Washington football team. They took Haskins, took Dwayne, and and demoted him to third third string quarterback. Imagine being, let's say you're a a supervisor, you're a supervisor at your job, right? And the guys that work for you, they come in late. They clock in late. They leave early. Job don't get done. Or, you know, guys are on there. They're not. They're on their phones, or they're not paying attention to the, what they're doing at work. And certain things don't get done, and business doesn't run smoothly. So, but you, as a supervisor, you're doing your job. You're doing the best that you can with the superiors. Uh, that you have I mean not the superiors With the guys that you have Working for you You're doing the best That you can do With what you have Follow me So Business doesn't run correctly So you get a call From your Your uh your superiors The guys you're working under They tell you look We're gonna have to demote you We're gonna bring you back down To a certain level And you're gonna have to work with them None of that was on you But they, they, you took the blame Because those around you Couldn't hold up their end of the bargain So you being the supervisor You took the brunt of it Meanwhile in Washington Dwayne Haskins Starting quarterback for the Washington football team One of the worst offensive lines in football can barely name more than five players on that of, on that offense if you don't really know the team. If you're a casual, if you're just a fan of the 
If you're not a fan of the Washington football team, nine times out of ten, you do not know most of their receivers or most of their offensive weapons because they probably really don't have any. So they take him. They don't move him to backup. No, no, no. They don't. They don't just move him to backup. They moved him to third string. Third string. So not only is he sitting behind. Kyle Allen, by the way, I forgot who Kyle Allen was. I had to remind myself. This is Kyle Allen. Who? How many picks did he hold on? Let me see some. Let me see some. It was. It was interesting to see how many picks he thrown and, and such. Let's look at his stats. Kyle Allen. Seventeen touchdowns, sixteen interceptions. That sound like a starting quarterback to y'all? Oh, my bad. No, I'm not reading Sam Donald's numbers. This was Kyle Allen's numbers last season. But, dude, that sound like a starting quarterback to y'all? Don't sound like one to me. Sounds pretty average, if you ask me. Don't sound no better than what you have. Not only is he sitting behind him, he's sitting behind Alex Smith. Alex Smith... Who can barely walk Barely got back to football My guy could barely walk in a pair of Nike slides Damn near got his leg ripped off That's who's your backup That's your backup So if Kyle Allen If if something happens to him You're going to turn to Alex Smith on Sunday if Kyle Allen gets in there and throws three interceptions in the first half and you're down 21 or you're down more than three touchdowns, you're going to you're going to turn to Alex Smith. OK, let's see what that line does. They couldn't even protect him. And that's why he's where he is. What do you guys really think is going to happen? When you put Kyle Allen in the game on Sunday, will it be different? I don't think so. How can you just switch? It's not even a week eight. We're not even halfway through the season and you've already given up on Dwayne Haskins. I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't get it. That's just something I will never understand. How? How? Can you give up on somebody that fast Who hasn't once again Has not started 16 games yet Take a a listen to this In their first 11 starts Josh Allen threw 163 for 305 That's 53.4% passing uh, Completion percentage right 2,000 yards 10 touchdowns 12 interceptions Dwayne Haskins 196 for 327 That's 59.1% 2,164 yards 11 touchdowns 6 interceptions That's their first 11 starts Now see the difference is Josh Allen Is surrounded by a coaching staff Management Who Got him weapons And molded him into, into, um, Into what we see today as an MVP front runner, Josh Allen. But Dwayne Haskins isn't afforded that same luxury. This Washington football team is so trash. They're not even trying. 
They're pulling the plug on something that's not even finished being built. Imagine you start building your house. Foundations laid. And y'all and, and you and you just be like, ah, never mind. I don't want to I don't want to build this house and I don't want this house no more. I'm gonna go rent something. Really? Really? And you know, touching back, coming circling back onto how the coaches in New York, um, you know, people want their heads on a stick. All right, God bless Ron Rivera, what he's going through, what he's coaching through. All right, so he comes into this Washington situation, knows it's a mess, knows what he has. So you're going to make it worse. Oh, no, not make it worse. I forgot. My bad. <laughs> this was this was your boy last year, right? This is a part of how you ended up with this job. Couldn't win with Kyle Allen. You get You get fired. Now you're in Washington and you bring this bum with you. So you, you figure you, you you couldn't get back to the play you couldn't get back to the Super Bowl with Super Cam. Um you come to Washington, another black quarterback. So now you're gonna pull the plug on him. You're gonna go back to your your boy last year who couldn't get you nowhere. Um good good luck with that, sir. Good luck with that. This is all so funny, man. How how they moved the goalposts. For these quarterbacks. They move the goalposts for them. What has Dwayne Haskins done that's so wrong? That any other young quarterback has done. Where it's like, ah, no. He just threw for 300 yards on the Baltimore Ravens. That's a real defense right there, by the way. But all of a sudden, he's not good enough to start. Somebody help me understand that. Maybe if Dwayne was named like Brad. uh, Somebody help me here. I don't know. Like Brad. Something cool. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Something white. Something, something, you know what I mean? Not Dwayne. Not Dwayne. Maybe like Brad Braddington or something. Something like that. Then it would be okay But It's just interesting how black quarterbacks are treated Compared to white quarterbacks And people don't want it to be about race Okay, cool That just means you're not comfortable having this conversation And you're oblivious to what's actually been happening for years Black quarterbacks, they they know Look, look Let me read you a couple of quotes Really quickly Read a couple quotes This is from Michael Vick A lot of us aren't viewed as passers We're viewed as athletes I think it's unfair And unfortunate Because you can't look at somebody You can look at a passer You can say okay We can work on his mechanics We can help him um, You know work on his arm We can help somebody But you can't help an athlete you can't you can't mold athletics. You can't do that. It's a cop out. It's a cop out. So they deem them uncoachable. 
Here's another quote from Tyrod Jackson. I mean, excuse me, from Tyrod Taylor. Interesting enough, just lost his job. It's always going to be twice as bad just because of who I am. An African-American quarterback. Look across the league, man. We're held to a certain standard. We almost have to be perfect. Or it's just the absolute truth. There's no room. As a black quarterback, there's no room to have a bad game. Look at how they do Lamar. Now look. I talked about Lamar last week. I mean, on Monday. I told Lamar, you know, he had to perform better against Pat Mahomes, right? I I, I said that. Yeah, absolutely. But did I kill Lamar for that? What else did I talk about when I talked about Lamar's game going up against Pat Mahomes? I talked about the Ravens receiving core, right? I talked about schemes. I talked about coaching. I didn't just blame it all on Lamar but see the media Lamar has has one bad one bad game and the media will jump on Lamar and it's always aha I knew it all along or finally he's been exposed or finally everybody knows what I knew all along you know when, when black quarterbacks are that good, there's always somebody, whether it's a fan, media, they they just wait, they wait, they wait, and they just wait until something bad happens where they can finally get their rocks off and say, hey, this guy's not good, as good as you all thought he was. Look at that. Look at that. It's sad though It really is But it's sadder When you look at the history of the league And how hard it was For black athletes um, Black football players To even get to be quarterbacks They wanted them to change their positions Come out of college High school you're a quarterback Nah you should be a running back Nah you should be a receiver Like what? Come on, man. Come on, man. Warren Moon had to go to Canada, bro. He had to go to Canada. He had to go to Canada to play football before he could be a quarterback in the NFL. Because at the time, they didn't believe a black man could be a quarterback in the NFL. So when you look at the history... Yeah, you can run the ball. You can go catch the ball. But throw it. Nah. Can't do that. And when you look at that, that once again ties into not only playing black in the NFL, but coaching black in the NFL. I wasn't going to do this, but I might as well, you know, might as well while we're, we're, we're still here on the, on this topic. You can be a, a coordinator. You can be a quarterbacks coach. You can be a receiver coach. You can be a defensive coordinator. You can be a special teams coordinator. You could be, um, you know, but head coach. Eh, it's a little too, you got a little too much dip on your chip. 
You look at the Rooney rule. You look at what they almost tried to do with the draft picks and everything before the season started. Thank God that got that got forgotten about. Even coaching black in the NFL. You really don't have room to be average. Don't matter what your situation is. Don't matter what organization you're with. You don't have time to be average. Look at Todd Bowles. We all know the Jets are trash. He's a coordinator. He had to go back to co- um. He's a coordinator now, and in, in Tampa, I didn't even know that. Like, black coaches aren't afforded. Like, look how look how long. Look at Dan Quinn. Look at Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn gets to the Super Bowl, twenty-eight-three, blows a twenty-eight-three lead, and hasn't been back to the playoffs since. I mean, excuse me, hasn't been back there since. Hasn't done anything of any greatness since. The Falcons have been become a laughing stock. He still has a job. It took for J.J. Watt to say something to Bill O'Brien before he got out of there. Lord, if that didn't, if that little skirmish didn't happen this past weekend, we he'd probably still have a job. It's, it's just, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Don't know. Three NFL head coaches are black in the NFL. Just three. Just three. Just three. But I think I think I got everything I wanted. Let me let me make sure. Yeah. You know, black black quarterbacks, they just don't get to develop, man. Don't get to develop. But hey, you know, it is what it is. That's the game. You know, the, like us, the game is rigged, man. They they don't they they really don't want to see them win. I just don't understand. I thought I thought I, I thought I murked the flag last week. Then I smoked the flag. I could have swore I did that. I could have swore I told you people to stop supporting the Confederate flag. I could have swore that the flag was made for losers and only losers can represent that flag. I thought that's what I said. Well, it seems to me that the flag is still... People are still so upset about the flag. Oh, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it, man. Uh, another another story, you know, as far as, you know, driven by the Confederate flag and all that, all the racism in the country right now. But at this point, I can't... We can't even separate sports and and stop calling this politics. This is not politics. Racism is not politics. Racism is not politics. Please do not tell me that when I'm talking about black lives matter and and black lives actually mattering. And when I'm talking about my people being killed by the police or being killed and lynched in the year 2020, that has nothing to do with politics. That's not politics. That's just me saying, hey, stop killing my people. 
Stop killing us. I don't understand how that's political. I don't. I don't understand how that's more offensive than the KKK existing and not being, uh, you know, labeled a terrorist group or a hate group. Or how is that more offensive than people parading around the Confederate flag? That's like me walking around with a swastika on my arm. Yeah, that's how deep it is. That's how deep it is. I don't. I don't understand how people don't understand how people aren't getting that. How it's not registering. But as I was saying, so you guys, I don't know if ever, anybody or if everybody's heard this story, but I'm, you know, I saw it. I, I decided to highlight it. I, I hope I pronounce this young man's name right. I want to say Kylan, Kylan Hill, right? He's a junior uh, from Columbus, Mississippi. He's running back at Mississippi State. He was uh, last year. He had 242 touches, 1,350 yards, 10 touchdowns, and he was a first-team All-SEC. Right, great running back, solid running back. So on Twitter, he says, "Either change the flag, or I won't be representing this state anymore." And I meant that. I'm tired. Uh, first of all, this was new. I was today years old when I learned this. I did not know that Mississippi was the only state that um, had the Confederate emblem on their state flag. I did not know that. I, d- I didn't even know like people, um, states, any states or anything official had that the, the Confederate flag on it. I did not know that. Nobody, that's news to me. Uh, and then on Twitter, I told the, the Mississippi governor, y'all flag ugly as hell. It is. It's It's nasty. Ew. Gross. That's why I'm so glad I'm from Maryland. I'm so I'm shout out to Maryland, man. We really do have the best flag. The best flag. Because look, like like you look at other flags in other states, y'all can't make clothes out of y'all flags. Like, it's not tough. Do you know how icy a, a pair? Go to Ocean City, Maryland and, and, and tell me how many uh Maryland flag shorts you see or Maryland flag Oreo jerseys you see. Cause you're not gonna see that in any other state, bro. We got the best flag, period. No city girls. I'm trying to tell you. Um so yeah, man. Then, then the NCAA had already told uh, the state of Mississippi. The NCAA, the SEC, and Conference USA said they uh, won't hold championship events in the state until the flag is altered. I just don't. Once again, I'm still not understanding how hard it is. I mean, once again, you look at the location. It's Mississippi. We know what Mississippi is. But that's no excuse, bro. Like, you got to look at yourselves. Look at the time you're in. It's it's 2020. It's not 1950. But at this point, I can't tell the difference. Um, Change it. <laughs> change it. It's, I don't think it should be that hard. Um, I, I really am really hung up on why this flag is so important to these people. I don't get it, bro. I don't understand why the Confederacy is so important to them. But once again, as far as back... <laughs> Backlash goes You guys missed it I did air quotes Backlash It's just a, a Once again it, it comes down to These people Only care about these black athletes On Saturdays and Sundays They do not care About these black athletes um, The other five to six days out of the week They do not care about these black athletes When they're being profiled They don't care about these black athletes When they're out in the streets They don't care about these black athletes When they get pulled over They don't care about these black athletes When they may call the police on them Because they don't know they're black athletes Because they can't recognize them Without their helmets and shoulder pads on Because at this point They're nothing but skin and numbers to them 
People telling this young man he's not important. Telling him he's a nobody. Telling this young man that, oh, he'll be out of here and we'll get another running back. It's just amazing to me how, how not, just how stupid racism actually is. It's, 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 it's interesting to think about. Because you put these kids, these young black men, on these, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to stay on the SEC because, you know, that's the South. These these big SEC teams, right? And, and they, they do good for your program. They, they win you a championship and, and, you know, they bring in a bunch of money to the state. But, you know, outside of the football field, they, you, <laughs> if you're not, and then again, you know, it's like if you're not an athlete, you're just another black kid. But you are an athlete, you're just, you know, celebrity like. But once again, if it's not Saturday, who cares? You know, who cares? And it's just interesting, man. Like how how can you love these athletes on the field but can't seem to understand what they go through off the field? I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And that's why, once again, I I, I really do fully support a migration from the SEC. Get the black athletes. Get the hell out the SEC, man. They don't love y'all down there. Get that. Don't go there. Don't go to them schools. <laughs> Pick any. You know, you. I mean, racism is, is everywhere. Of course, we know that. That's that's not what I'm saying. What I'm just saying. But you know where you are in these schools, like in these areas. You know where you are. I wouldn't go. If I had the opportunity, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. I fully support a migration and a, a, and, a, and an abandonment of the SEC. They don't want you in your t- in their towns. They don't want you in their don like they don't want y'all, bro. They don't. These Facebook comments, these Twitter replies, that's you know that's what these people really think of you. On Saturday, when they cheering for you, when they cheering your number, and yelling when you're going down the field, that's 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 fake love. They don't mean that. They're just happy for the team. They're happy for who they're cheering for, but but when you speak out, when you use your voice, and you talk about that real, and you talk about you know things that make them uncomfortable, and it's sad that and honestly none of this should make anybody uncomfortable, but it does, it does, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, it pisses me off, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, and you know I'm I'm sure it pisses them off, but for the wrong reasons, they don't want to hear about it, they don't want to hear about it. You know, and also we got to stop this, um, this whole, the narrative that, you know, older people are the only racist people out. That's not true at all. There are people my age who think just like this. That's what they've been taught. That's what they learned. They've learned this and this is what they see, you know? So, you know, that has to stop because they're just as bad. It's sick, man. It's sick out here, bro. It's 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 sad that since I've been back on the show, it seems like every week I have to talk about something like this. I mean, but I'm I'm glad I I have this 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 platform and I'm able to discuss these things because it needs to be talked about. And and I'm glad that you can hear it from someone that you know in your age bracket instead of someone you know talking down to you or you feel like you can't really. Resignate, you know. I'm so I'm glad that we're able to have these conversations. But more power to Colin Hill. If he really doesn't, you know, if he really does, you know, transfer, I I would, I wouldn't blame him. 
Wouldn't blame him. All right, so I want to talk about a documentary I watched. All right, so after the Miami and Florida game, which was a good, great game. Sloppy, but great game. It was entertaining as hell. Uh, after that, ESPN had a documentary. So it looked, So it's the NCAA's, you know, it's college football's 150th anniversary. So they're doing a docu-series about the college football. So the the first episode, the one that I watched uh, this past weekend that I tried to tell everybody uh, to watch, and um, it was pretty good. It was about the college game itself, right? It's about the college football game. So they started all the way back from the late 80, 1890s and took us all the way up to now. Crazy documentary. I learned a lot. I really did learn a lot. Now, the most interesting part of the documentary was the life and death of HBCU football. I'm going to give you guys a history lesson today. We're going to get deep today. We're going to get a little deep today. I wanted to start off with this um, because I didn't want you know this to get lost in 35 you know, 25 minutes in, I wanted to start off with this because it's going to be a very important segment. So, HBCUs, you don't know what HBCU is, it's a historically black college, uh, mostly in the South. Uh, these were schools made for black people, as you know, you know, before uh, segregation was ended, you know, everything was split, even schools, of course. So, historically black uh, universities were made for black people. And they had football Still do But not nearly as You know Big as it was During it's heyday So Here's 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 the thing Great great This this is what I'm about to Everything I'm about to tell y'all is facts Like real facts And it's just crazy to see Right And, and you know the way That Segregation Excuse me Desegregation Segregation basically killed the HBCU football. It, it's crazy because you think you know segregation. All right, it's bad. Segregation is bad. You know why not? We can't all be together, right? But segregation allowed black folks, black athletes, to go off and do their own thing, and and still play at a high level. That's that's what it allowed them to do. Black athletes, black football, black college football players were flourishing in HBCUs. Oh, we can't go to Texas. We can't go to Texas. We can't go to Clemson. We can't go to Bama. Cool. We'll go to Grambling. We'll go to Morgan. You know what I mean? And it's just like, especially in the South, deep South, deep South, it was it was booming down there. Um, so here here's what I want to discuss. Okay, so. Alabama, first of all, Alabama's always been good at football, by the way. Not just, you know, last 15 years. Alabama's always been good at football. So, Paul Bear Bryant, he was a coach of the Alabama in um, the 60s, right? So, he, he's the coach. They had all white teams. All white teams. Nobody on the team was black through the 60s. Nobody on the team was black. They won three national championship games. Now, towards the end of the 60s, you know, desegregation, you know, everything started to get segregated. Some teams in the north, like Michigan State, Notre Dame, they had uh, integrated a little bit. There were black athletes on the team. And those teams got pretty good. Southern coaches still wasn't going for it. They like, no, no black people on this. There will be no blacks on this team, no colors on this team. We white only, white only. And the fans, bro, if you guys watch this documentary, just look at, like, 
the white pride. Like they were so like this it was like they were scared to have this sport taken from them. They were scared to have black people, black athletes be more dominant than them on the gridiron. This was the almost one of the last things that that white people had. The sport of football, college football. They didn't want to let that go. They did not want to let it go, especially in the South. They did not want to let that go. So by the end of the 60s, uh, Alabama, they got a little weak. You know why? Because they were still all white and they were not able to compete. Somebody in the doc said that if uh, the South didn't desegregate, if they didn't include black players, the South would probably not be anymore. There would probably be no Southern, no SEC. They wouldn't. Teams just weren't good enough to compete nationally without black players. So by the end of the sixties, Paul Bear Bryant's uh Alabama team were not they weren't winning that they weren't they were mediocre. They were average. So he signed his first black player in December of nineteen sixty nine. He was a running back. And um by the end of the seventies Oh, also that he got them back to number one in nineteen seventy three. And by the end of the 70s, Paul Bear's Alabama team was 40% black. 40% black. It went from, oh, we don't need them, I don't need them, to, oh, God, half, almost half my team is black now. Not because, okay, let's end racism, let's fight racism, let's combat racism, let's, let's, let's desegregate, let's integrate for, for the, um, the good of the cause. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. They saw how good those brothers was on that field and said, oh, God, let me go get some because I want to win. And they would go on to win three more national championships. It's that simple. Don't let, you know, history, because I don't, I, I think a lot of this, I, I don't think a lot of people know about this. I don't. This is very important to learn. They 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 needed the brothers. They did. Now the, the story only gets interesting, more interesting. So, you know, they kept and this is another thing they did. Now now okay, now you see how successful Alabama was. So, let's go back to 1968. 1968, Morgan State and Grambling University. They played at Yankee Stadium. They played at Yankee Stadium. This is this is how big HBCU football was. They went up to New York to play in Yankee Stadium. They sold Yankee Stadium out. There were sixty three thousand people there. Majority of them were black. Majority of them were black to see two HBCU football teams put on a show. This is the same year that Dr. King was assassinated. A lot of riots going on, and it just you know the. Uh, Doc who played wide receiver for Morgan Said that they felt like This was big and it was And it was and it was big For many reasons One They just sold out Yankee Stadium Two HBCU teams sold out Yankee Stadium In 1968 Know what that tells us Oh the black people can do it on their own That's That, that scared the hell out of the NCAA Scared the hell out of them It did It's like well they don't need us but we need them. So instead of bringing in 
HBCU teams into the conference, you know, into the bigger conferences, what they did was pick the elites off of the HBCU teams, took them, brought them to the NCAA, and made basically wiped away the HBCU programs. They crumbled. They took the best talent. They said, we're not going to bring everybody in. No, 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 no. We don't want all of you. We don't want your coaches. We don't want your players. We don't want your school. No, 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 no. We don't want that. We want the best that you have. We're going to take them. They're going to make us money. They're going to make our teams better. We're going to win football games. We don't need the rest of you. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, another thing I learned, you know, that, that about the uh, – Eddie Robinson, he was the coach of Grambling. He was the first college coach to win 400 games. Did not know that. Did not know that. And in a 15-year span, over 500, 500 HBCU football players, college football players were drafted to the NFL. At one point, Grambling had more NFL draft picks uh, than Notre Dame. I just thought that was interesting because, and you know, I, I heard somebody say, why not, why why black athletes should migrate back to HBCU football? That's way easier said than done. Way easier said than done. Way easier said than done. Like, you know, going back to the Morgan and Grambling game, after that game, you know, happened, that's when they started recruiting. They they started picking them up, and that's that's the thing. These big school, big schools recruit. They recruit. They recruit better than anybody, and they got more resources, more money, more the, the, the TV rights, better facilities, better school. They just, and that's how they get you. I mean, it's the truth. I mean, if I'm a college athlete, if I'm a football player, I'm definitely picking UMD because you know I'm Maryland. I'm Maryland guy. I'm picking UMD over Morgan. I'm not gonna go play football in Morgan. I'm not gonna go play football at UMD. I can go play football at you know another big school but that's that's where it is now that's where it is now that's where it is and 12 of the last 13 teams third excuse me 12 of the last 13 national championships were won by teams in the south teams that didn't allow black players teams like Alabama teams like Clemson Texas it's crazy to think about man it's it's really crazy to think about you know NCAA Profited and, and and made it You know Seem like They were doing this You know To 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 better the game And make it all inclusive No 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 It's, it's easy to see What they did it for You know But I thought that was interesting I just thought that was something Interesting I wanted to share with you guys And I thought you guys Needed to know this man Because You know people think You know HBCUs Are just you know, um, you know, they talk about Tuskegee and they just they, they talk about, you know, more of the academic and and, you know, the not not so much the sports. They don't they don't really talk about the football. You know, I feel like that's like buried in our real history. That's a part of history, black history, football history. And I just thought that you guys, you know, I just thought that was interesting to share. That's all. That's all. Um yeah, man, but go go read up on some of that stuff Or go watch the documentary Because it's real interesting stuff, man Real, real interesting stuff Real interesting stuff um, It's just it's just crazy to see, man That they didn't, they didn't want black people Black athletes until they realized How much they needed them 
crazy. crazy. I saw a video that was very interesting to me over the weekend. Uh, it was a soccer video that went viral. It wasn't funny. It wasn't a crazy goal. It was a, a player reacting to racism. And, you know, I watched, like, uh, real sports, you know, HBO, Brian Gubbin. I remember one time they did a, a, a special on racism. This was, like, maybe two, three years ago uh, in soccer in all the different countries and everything. And it's just, like, it is really crazy to watch. And it's just, like, what can you do? I'm, I'm going to read from the article that I found. I didn't even know they, that – that the uh, the league, you know, the leagues were doing anything about it because I like when I read that it was like wow that's that's really good but it's just like these people come to these games man with just real like real life like ill will intentions and it's like it's not a lot of it's like from what I've seen it's usually not like a lot of black guys or black players on the team like it's usually like. A couple out of the the they're, they're minorities. They're minorities on the team. Like their teams is it's not like that, but usually it's like that. So the fans go to these games and they throw bananas. Like they've thrown bananas on the fields. And now their go to is the monkey. It's always the monkey thing. Like like bro, that's all you got for real. That's the best y'all can do. Call us a monkey, really, really. And it's just like really, man, like. I don't know. It's just it's just bad, bro. It's bad for business. So here's what happened. So um, this guy's name I don't want to pronounce his name wrong, but this, uh, his name is Mausa Mar Mar. Wait, hold on. Marega. I want to say like Marega or Mar. Yeah, I don't know. Mausa Marega. That's where we're gonna go. Um, so he was. So basically, the whole game from the opposing um side, they were uh. Chanting, you know, the monkey chants and everything. So this is going on for the whole game. So in the 60th minute, he scored basically the game winning goal. So when he scored, he was he was celebrating, and he was pointing at his skin. He put his arms up, and he gave the fans a middle finger. And of course, you know, he got booked for that from the ref, but whatever. So they and then they started throwing stuff on the field, and um, he was like, man, he put his thumbs down. I was like, whatever. And he tried to walk off the pitch. If you know, if you don't know what the pitch is, the pitch is the field. Try to walk off the field, and his teammates were just trying to grab him. Like, no, don't do this. Blah blah blah. What? Come on, dog. This is your teammate here. This is your teammate, and he is being uh, mentally and emotionally and verbally abused right now during this game. You guys are really trying to stop him from leaving the pitch because you're scared of the repercussions. I mean, I know there are repercussions, but it's easy. For your for your manager to sub him out, but you guys were really grabbing him and like telling him no, no, don't leave, come on play. Like how no, bro? I'm not trying to hear that. Y'all don't go. Y'all don't gotta go through with what uh, what I'm going through. Y'all not feeling what I'm feeling right now, and y'all will never feel that. So yeah, I'm gonna walk off the pitch. Yeah, whatever, bro. I've had enough. It's been going on. It's been going on all game. Ain't nothing been done about it. So I'm out. Deuces. So to see his teammates not rally around him, but try to stop him, that was I was like, wow, like that that was that tells you a lot, man. That tells you a lot. You know, we we all try to do this thing where, 
It's like, oh man, let's all be together and let's all try to be one and all united and stuff. But it's just like, that's not real life, man. That's not real life. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you hang around black people. I don't care if you're not racist. But you people really don't know what it's like, man. You know, whether you're white, uh, Spanish. Like, I know minorities are usually put together as people of color, right? They usually put people of color together. But even other people of color <laughs> always find a way to be prejudiced and racist towards black people. I don't care if you're Asian, uh, Mexican, Hispanic, whatever uh, version of... Um, Look, man, y'all know what I'm saying here. It's always like black people, people of African descent, wherever you come from, are usually the punchline to it all. So when you say people of color, I'm, I don't roll with people of color. I don't. Because people of color don't even ride for, for people of color, man. It's, they don't. It's black people. Feel what I'm saying? So, to watch his teammates who were supposed to be his brothers on the pitch, off the pitch, not ride for him, that was telling. Because it's like they can't feel that. They've never felt that. They've never. They've probably never been in a situation where somebody with different color skin than them felt the way about them and did any ill will to them simply because they weren't. They didn't look like them. So they can't understand that. They can't. So. And that's how I feel Like I have white friends I have white friends I don't have a problem with, problem with white people Or people outside my race But it's just like When I get When I When when I see them not understanding Like I've lost a lot of friends Who I were people I, Who I thought were friends Over situations like Mike Brown Freddie Gray Or even early as Trayvon Martin And I was in middle school When that was going on I was 8th grade going to ninth grade When that was happening That's something That transition So Even as early as that I was 13 years old and I'm watching, you know, people I thought were my friends or people I thought uh, like really like black people flip the switch. Like they're on Facebook and they were on Facebook, like really looking like 60 year old white people. And that opened my eyes and I understood that. I'm like, bro, some people will really never get it. And it's just something we all have to understand. Like we can try to go the we can we can go with the whole oh, we don't see color and. And um, we're all brothers and sisters And we're all human beings No, 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 no That's BS, that's bogus, man And that's bogus And, and it's evident when you see stuff like this Because it's not, it's not unusual It's not rare And it's actually getting worse Let me hold on, let me take a look at this article here That I, I, I read And I thought was really interesting I believe this was on um, what is this? Okay, ABC News. So here's the title. This is uh, Racism in Soccer, an Epidemic that Mirrors Disturbing Trends in Europe. All right, here we go. So I'm going to read this. Late last month, or who is this article by, by the way? This is by Guy Davies. This is written on February 1st, so not too long ago. Late last month, in the 63rd minute of one of the highest profile games on the English soccer calendar, a clash between Chelsea and Tottenham officials were forced to stop play. It wasn't because of a yellow card or even a red card. 
racism had apparently reared its ugly head once again. A scourge that a scourge that has been um, resurfacing in a number of professional sports in recent years. Antonio Rudiger, a black Chelsea defender, was seen complaining to the referee with a jester putting his un- hands under his armpits to indicate that he believed he had been subjected to racist monkey chants from rival Tottenham uh, supporters. The referee, Anthony T- Taylor, used a new protocol from UEFA, European Soccer's uh, governing body, to stop play. The new protocol introduced in October allows for the referee to abandon the match if racist behavior um, continues after two warnings issued by a stadium announcer. Three stadium announcements that racist behavior among supporters is interfering with the game followed in the remaining half hour. A surreal, confusing, and sad spectacle for soccer fans watching on television and in the stands. It is really sad to see racism again at a football match, but I think it's very important to talk about it in public. Rudiger posted on Twitter after the incident. If not, it will all it will be forgotten. Again, and in a couple of days, as always, when will the nonsense stop? Eventually, Tottenham and the police said they could find no evidence that Rudiger had been suggested to the taunts, although a Chelsea fan was arrested for racially abusing a Tottenham player. Um, Chelsea is not competent. The incident had uh, closed out a year in which levels of racism in European soccer, described by the anti-racism advocates, as an epidemic reached new heights. This is crazy, man. All right, continuing. If this was the first time the new protocol had been used, it certainly doesn't look like it will be the last. Over the course of the 2018-19 season, which ran from September to July, England's anti-racism and pro-inclusion group for the sport Kick It Out released statistics demonstrating that the reports of discrimination on the grounds of gender, sexual orientation, religion, race had increased 32% from the previous season from 319 to 422. Racist incidents constituted 65% of those reports, the data shows. The problem hasn't just been race, just uh, hasn't just been racist abuse directed at players alongside racist incidents anti-racism charities have long criticized soccer's governing bodies for limp responses to these incidents and weak punishments praying paying lip service to problems without showing leadership leadership and stamping them out both fifa the world's soccer governing body and UEFA have punished back, have pushed back on those assertions, blaming the rise of nationalism and reaffirming their own commitments to fighting re- racism. UEFA's sanctions are among the toughest in the sport for clubs, clubs and associations whose supporters are racist at our matches. The organization stated uh, in in a statement in October, among the highest profile incidents was a match between England and Bul. Bulgaria in uh, October, which saw Bulgaria supporters allegedly directing Nazi salutes and monkey chants. Dog, what's up with the monkey things, bro? Is that like, like seriously, bro? Is that the best they can do over there? Because if you call me a monkey, I'm going to have 50 things to say back at you, and they won't even be racist. I'm going to just cook you up. 
For real, I'll just cook you up. Call me a monkey, I'm gonna cook you up. Um, um, I salute at England's black players forcing the game to stop twice. Bulgaria already had was halfway through a partial st- uh, stadium ban for previous racist incidents, which saw 5,000 fans blocked from entering a 46,000 seat stadium in October. Um, it just goes on, you know, with the, um, you know, different incidents and different punishments. Uh, this article is really good, by the way. I'm going to, I'm going to tweet this article after, um, you know, I'll probably tweet this on the, on Instagram, on the Twitter page and everything. So you guys can read it, but you get the gist, man. It's ugly. It's ugly. You know, we can, you know, people try to act like racism doesn't exist, especially in this country, but in all countries, man, racism is real. Whether you like it or not And I know it makes you guys uncomfortable It makes people uncomfortable to talk about But it's it's something we have to talk about You know this is a sports show But racism It's in sports From the beginning And It has to be talked about 